If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that out or pull up your Bible, phone Bible, um, and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Yes, I said it, chapter 2. We've made it through Ephesians chapter 1. We are officially in chapter 2. It's a new age, people. It's a new day. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're at. So grab your Bible, go there. As you're turning there, let me kind of give you an idea of, of, of the corner we're turning as we go into this. So what Paul has just got through doing in his letter to this church, this church that we have a lot in common with, that everything that he wrote to them then still applies to what life is going on now. He just got through kind of letting this grenade of the gospel explode. And this, he just went on this tirade, like in a good way, about God's grace and about what God has done for us. And then he moved from praise to prayer. And he explained um, what he was praying for in light of the God he was praying. And then we come to chapter 2, and he begins to really just uh, lay out before us the gospel. And today, as we go through Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 5, we're going to kind of see it a little bit right at the beginning in the context of 1 through 10. 1 through 10, most theologians and scholars would say Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you didn't have all of the rest of the Bible and somebody just handed you a card with Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 on it, that would be sufficient enough information to put your hope, faith, and trust in Christ and receive the salvation that he and he alone offers. It is kind of like the distilled essence of the Bible, the distilled essence of who God is and what his big grand story is wrapped up in these 10 verses. And so let's read them. All right. You're hopefully there by now. Let's check it out. Ephesians 1, starting verse 2. We'll go to verse 10, but we're going to really lean into 1 through 5. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. I believe he's writing to the church in McDonough as well. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the simple message of the gospel here in those 10 verses. And Jesus, we pray that as we show up today, that that gospel message, that, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but by faith and through faith, we can receive this free gift of forgiveness and new life in you. And then you raise us up out of our old dead lives. You seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. And you, God, you say, you're my workmanship. 
And from the very beginning of time, I've had a plan for you. And so Jesus, I know that in a room like this and everybody who's even watching online, God, we showed up today with all sorts of agendas. We showed up with all sorts of things that happened this, over the course of this last week. Some of us, God, maybe have not really wanted to be here this morning, but we drug ourselves out and we showed up and we're in this room. And Jesus, I pray that the God who you are, the one who inspired these words to be written in a jail cell in Rome, thousands of years ago, that you, that same Holy Spirit that put pen to paper in a prison cell, that that same Holy Spirit would be available to us in this room, that it would be moving to us in this room, that it would guide and direct us in this room. We're asking for miracles to happen, Jesus, for dead hearts, for cold hearts, for blind eyes and deaf ears to become ones that can see, ones that hear the truth, and hearts that beat in rhythm with you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. Let it guide us and lead us out of what we're in and more and more into you. In your name, amen. So a little bit of a um, preamble to the message today. Today is probably gonna feel a little bit more like Good Friday. Uh, if you've been around uh, church for a while, you know Good Friday is leans a little bit more to the brokenness and the brutality that, that sin is and, and the truth about our sin-scarred broken world and then next week, it's probably gonna feel a lot more like Easter because as you read through and as you just heard me read through verses one through 10, you saw that one through three were kind of bleak, right? And then you hit a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 and the, the sun comes up. Well, today uh, we're going to just barely catch the sunrise and next week we're gonna fully enjoy the life and the truth that is in the resurrected savior. So let's dive into this. Let's start today right at the word that ended verse five. If you're in your Bible, you can see that. It says, for by grace, you have been saved. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word saved, but for me, I wouldn't say it's a trigger word for me, but I always kind of get cautious when I hear Christians, when I hear pastors, when I hear people talk about saved, because I've seen that word be misused a lot in Christian context. We'll go to a camp. And we'll, we'll, we'll ask some different things and we'll kind of maybe use some, some manipulative kind of words. And we'll ask people, if this is what you want, raise your hand. And then once they put their hands down, we'll say, all of you guys just got saved. Or you'll be driving down I-75 on your way to Florida and you see these billboards. And one of them is, is, a, is a couple that looks like they have a great credit score. And... <laughs> And, and then and the wife, her hands are on the husband's shoulder and they're both just smiling at the thing. And then on the other side of the billboard, it, it looks like a, a, a zombie apocalypse looking thing. And it's in black and white and their eyes are usually always red. And on one side over the couple with the great credit score, it says saved. And then on the other side, it says not saved. And then at the bottom, there's like a thing that says, which are you? Or you go to a Texaco bathroom anywhere in the South. <laughs> and you look to the stall wall and it says, Jesus does what? He saves. And then usually underneath is, no, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> and there's like a conversation. Like, I don't know who, why are you guys bringing so many pocket knives into the bathroom anyway? Why do you want to stay in here this long? But I, what, I, what I do know is I, I've heard a lot of testimonies in my life. I've heard very few that start, I was just in this Texaco bathroom and I just, I just needed help. <laughs> and I looked to the left and, and I knew Jesus could save me. Like, I, I hear very few testimonies that start out like that. And so I don't know what it conjures up in your mind. Maybe you grew up in one of those hellfire brimstone kind of churches where you hear that word saved and it was, you know, pastor, he is buttoned up at the top and his neck was bulging, his eyes was bulging. He added two extra syllables to the word saved. <laughs> and you, that's what you grew up with. And so it does different things inside of us. 
But the truth is, as I really don't think there is any better word that describes what Jesus did than he saved us. And I think that's why there's so much potential for it to be taken the wrong way because it is truly the right way. And so Paul jumps out in this passage and he jumps right into two big myths that people have around our need for salvation and the fact that we have to have a savior. And he debunks these two, two myths right off the bat. The first myth is this. The first myth that he dives into is that the problem with the world is other people. That at the end of the day, it's the evil that exists in others that is the reason that I need to lock my doors and get a security system. It's because of the bad that's going on in somebody else's life. And usually this plays itself out as we divide ourselves out and we think that the other people, and it's not just other individuals, it's also other groups. And so one of the ways this primarily plays out in our conservative culture here in America is, is we would say um, the liberal people, they're the problem because they're, they're trying to undermine the truths of society and they're trying to pull out the backbone of who we are as a country and we're just too open-minded and too loosey-goosey. And the conservatives would say, they're just, they're just trying to take gluten out of everything. And then the liberal side returns the favor to the conservative side and says, you guys are just prideful and, and you're bigoted and, and you're hateful and you refuse to recycle. And there are these dividing lines. And the myth is that it's always somebody else's problem. And this myth kind of runs along the same lines of the other kind of primary myth that exists in our culture. And it is simply this, that deep down, we're not really that bad of people. That the reality is we're actually just, we're inherently in our nature is really good. Just given the circumstances that some of us find ourselves in, it's what causes us to make bad decisions. It's what causes us to do bad things. It's a, we are a product of our environment. And right off the bat, not even at the end of the first sentence, Paul blows both of those two giant myths up when he says these words. And you, stop right there, you, not the other people on the other side of the aisle, not the people with different pigmentation than you, you were dead. Dead. Dead in your sin and dead in your trespasses. If you're taking notes today, we're gonna to walk through five things that we were. Paul lays them out. And I think we have to be able to see these things that we were before we see. Again, this is a whole series on identity. So if we're gonna see who we are in Christ, we gotta see who we were without him, okay? So I want you to see some of these things. First thing you were is you were dead. Not just kind of dead, you were like dead, dead. Dead in your sins and dead in your trespasses. This is the first word that Paul chooses to use when he describes who we are. His truth here is that we were not just that we were good people who lost our way or our problem wasn't that we just sometimes did bad things. Our problem was not our environment, our parents, our privilege or our lack of privilege. Our problem was not our politics. Our problem was that we were spiritually dead. Now, when he says you are dead because of your sins and your trespasses, what I want you to understand that he's not talking about there, he's not saying you were dead because of your sins so that you just think, okay, I was dead because of what I did. Sin and trespasses is not just action. It's a condition. And that's why it makes you dead. It's not just the act of stealing. It's not just the act of lying. It's not just the act of adultery. It's the condition that leads to the act. In the same way that when I have diarrhea and I'm vomiting, I don't have food poisoning. When I have food poisoning, I have diarrhea and I vomit. 
Sorry to make that brutal, but now hopefully you understand that it's not what I'm doing, it's the condition that I have that leads to what I'm doing. And he says, because you are spiritually dead, the sin that you commit is part of your life. The trespasses that you walk, that's because you are dead and the sin is a condition. We see this in our kids because it's by nature. It's just kind of who we are from the beginning. We watch this and Jessica and I with our two kids, you sit them down in the high chair. And again, before they you know, ever like, can really learn or read or do anything else like that, you sit them down in the high chair and you make a little plate for them. You know? And it's got you know, little cheeky nuggies and some green beans and maybe some cut up strawberries and everything else. And just depending on whatever kind of mood the kid's in that day, you've seen this happen with your kids or your grandkids. They'll take the plate. They'll look you in the eye and dump it. You know, and if you're one of those parents who doesn't give your kid a plate, the thing on there, they'll eat all the other stuff. And the stuff that they don't want, what they'll do, they'll start grabbing it. And they'll look you in the eye when they do it. It's because they may be cute, but they're little balls of sin. <laughs> they are. They are, man. They just are. Like our kids never once saw Jessica take the remote out of my hand and go, mine. She always did that before when they went to bed. Um, <laughs> they never saw her do that. But like, again, we didn't have to send them to sin camp for them to do that with their toys. They would just take some, mine, this is mine. Or they'd walk over, older brother, walk over, little brother. They're taking, we see this in our kids. It's by nature. It's what we've been born into. It's part of who we are. And when Paul goes here and he says, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins, this is intentionally not just trying to like dog pile up on the same thing. He's trying to say, this is a one-two punch. He said, you've made mistakes, obviously, and we're living under the result of these mistakes, but it is sins and trespasses. It's his way of saying it's mistakes by commission and omission. It's what you did wrong intentionally and what good you didn't do because you couldn't. So it's not just saying that we're rebels. It's also saying that you're failure. Again, welcome to MCC. <laughs> it's gonna get really bad. And then it's going to get really good. Trust me. So he says, first thing you are is you were in fact dead. Now, some of you may be hearing this. You can go like, but man, I know a lot of people who may not be in Christ, but they still do a lot of good things. They, they give a lot of charity or they're a good person or they cook really good food and they invite us over to eat it. Like I, I still know that there are these things. Well, think about it like this. At your workplace or maybe in your own refrigerator at home, sometimes this happens is my wife, she's awesome. She'll make, pack me like a, a to-go, like in Tupperware to, to, to have for lunch in the office when I'm, when I'm here at the church. And um, what happens sometimes is she'll pack me that and I'll totally forget that I have a lunch meeting that day. And so that thing will just stay in the refrigerator for a long time. All right. And then one of the, you know, somebody in the, in the kitchen will kind of get this out and they'll smell it and it, they pass out. And then once they wake up, what they don't do after that is they don't go, oh man, Trent, here's your lunch again, dude. It just needs some Frank's Red Hot Salt and some, some seasoned salt and it's good to go. No, because what they understand about that and what we understand, but we fail to realize when we think somebody's just a good person is there are going to be different variations of the decay that has happened. When that chicken went in the fridge, it was already dead. Now, based off the amount of time it's been in there, it's decaying. And in this world, we may be able to kind of sprinkle some seasoning on of charity or religion or good works or a good personality. But at the end of the day, no matter how much sauce we put on our life to try to make it taste better or make the decay less, it's still dead and it's still decaying. 
to varying degree or another. That's why Paul jumps right off the, from the very beginning and says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. He goes on from there to kind of show us the second thing that we were, is we were dead. And dead means that you don't have hope of being alive in and of yourself. Because again, dead things can't resurrect themselves. Which makes what I do very scary. Because if I really understand what I do as a pastor, and if you really understand what you're doing as a parent who is supposed to be the primary disciple of your child, if you are someone who serves in student ministry or serves in children's ministry, if you're someone who um, maybe uh, your kids are kind of out in left field, but you have these grandkids who come to your home and you're trying to show them a godly example, what we're actually doing is we're preaching the gravestones. It's the, it's the spiritual equivalent of me going to the local cemetery here in McDonough, taking this nice table that I preach from because I don't preach from a pulpit and uh, just getting out there in front of the, these people. I'm, I'm talking to Mr. Simpson, Mr. Walter and Miss Phyllis and I'm just preaching to these graves. Which is it's what I wanna remind you of here. This is our call, like this is our spiritual endeavor. We don't, we're not trying to grow a church by getting a lot of people who didn't have anything to do on Sunday to show up and, and do something here. Our call and our endeavor, and if you're a disciple of Christ, your call in your life and your life mission is to be about dead things, dead people being raised to life. And the newsflash in this is you can't do that. It is a miracle. God is the only one who can do that. Now, by some crazy stretch of imagination, he looks at messed up, jacked up people like me and you. And once we're in Christ, he says, hey, I want you to partner with me in this. I'm gonna do most, if not all of the heavy lifting. I just want you to be able to be what helps them get in the place where they can learn these things, hear these things. And then I want you to walk alongside of them as they've been, as they've been raised to life. I want you to like the people who were around Lazarus to be used by God to take some of those grave clothes and the, the mummification off of them so that they can fully walk in this new life they've been given. But at the tomb of Lazarus, there was nobody who could call him out, but God himself. And there's nobody that can save your kids, but God himself. There's nobody who can save your coworkers, but God himself. That's why we have to be a praying church. Because we're asking for something as wild as Walter Simpson to get out of the grave for someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses to be raised to find new life in Christ. The second thing that Paul shows us that we are is that we were dead in our trespassers, trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world. So the thing that we were is we were drifting. We were dead for sure. Now again, this deadness is not the fact, like obviously I don't mean that your body can't do stuff. When we talk about deadness, we're talking about spiritual deadness. The part that God created you to be alive forever is dead to him. And from there, because of that, our life is just spent drifting along. It's spent going back and forth on the course of this world. Which again, this is Paul introducing our first enemy here. If you're in Christ, your first enemy is the world. You have three really strong forces working against you at all times. The world is the first one. And because the world is working against us, we drift. And Jesus spoke about this. He, he talked about our tendency to drift. That's why in Matthew 7, 13, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, and again, best sermon ever preached. If Jesus was gonna say something that he wanted people to understand and get, it was this part here, seven thirteen. He says, enter in through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
It's, it's natural to drift into this one. You don't have to try to drift into this one. This is just where your feet naturally are planted. The moment you're born into planet earth, this broad way that leads to destruction. That's why he says those who enter by it are many. And then he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It's a narrow gate and the way is hard that leads to life. And then he says some really scary words here. He says, those who find it are few, which means that the old notion, the worldly notion that there is strength in numbers is garbage. That everybody is doing it so that it must be right is a, probably actually your radar that should go off to say, this is actually probably wrong. If the way to Christ is, is a narrow, hard way and only a few find it, and the, the way to destruction is, is big, broad, and wide, and many people find that, well then maybe, there's no such thing as strength in numbers. Maybe I should seek actually to take minority positions more often because that is actually maybe where Christ is. Think about when I go fishing with my kids and especially if we go trout fishing, one of the things that always happens um, is I wanna make sure that the kids actually hook the trout. And so oftentimes because of that, it will completely swallow whatever the bait is and then the trout will end up getting gill hooked. If a trout is gill hooked, it's DEA dead. Like there ain't no saving that trout. There's nothing you can do. Just kind of gonna yank it out. And if it's, you know, you, that's kind of what happens. Now, again, sometimes when you're fishing with kids, if you ever held a trout or really any fish, they're pretty slippery, all right? What happens sometimes when you catch a trout, you gill hook them and you can't get them back so you can actually harvest it and go and eat it and you know, make yourself not feel as bad for ruining this beautiful fish's great life is it dies. It's in the water. And if you're in a river, there's a current and the current is always flowing downstream. And time after time, I've watched this multiple times, I have not yet seen any dead fish go upstream. Not one. I've done a lot of trout fishing. I can tell you that I've seen plenty of live fish go upstream. And so if your life feels like you're just kind of floating along, kind of on this lazy river, maybe dead, spiritually dead. You're alive. You're enjoying the float. Spiritually, you may be dead. And here's a telltale sign that you're spiritually alive. You feel the extra effort that it's taking to swim against the current of everything that is current. You feel it. He says, before we came to Christ, before our faith was made new, and for those of us who maybe be in the room and this isn't our, some of this is a diagnosis of what you were, some of this is a diagnosis of what you are. He says, the telltale sign is you're drifting. You're drifting. He goes on back to verse two. He says, you were drifting in this and this was the way of the world worked. But then he keeps going. He says, we walked in this way. We were following this course of the world. Well, okay, well, who's behind that? Who's pulling the strings? Who's calling the shots in that? Well, we'll let you know. We are following the prince of the power of the air. What he means by that, and again, you probably guessed it. He's talking about Satan. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were following the one who ruled this fallen, broken place that we were a part of. And as we followed this, as we listened to this, as we did these things, what we did is we took on the same attitude that the enemy Satan had. If you go back and you look at the fall of Satan and how his origin story of going from being uh, this beautiful angel in heaven, that's actually what the name Lucifer means. And then being kind of sentenced to, to, to get out of heaven. He couldn't be in God's presence after uh, him and a third of the angels tried to lead this rebellion over God. They banish him down to here and he begins to kind of set up shop as this defeated enemy trying to do everything he can to take as many people back down with him. His whole plan, if you go back and you look at his fall, was what he thought he deserved. It's all rooted in pride. I, 
I, I should get this. I should get this attention. I should be the center of heaven. And that same heart, that same spirit of disobedience, self-centered disobedience that says, my will is best. My ways are most important. I actually am the smarter one in this equation. I know what's best for me. That same attitude is what becomes our attitude. And what's really terrifying about this we are following the prince of the power there that is now at work. And I, 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 this is what's terrifying about this. It's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, maybe you remember back in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, when I talked about that from the very beginning of time, we were chosen in Christ and we were predestined to adoption as sons. This is why we had to be adopted. This is why you weren't just saved. This is why you weren't just redeemed. This is why you were brought into a brand new family. It's because when you were without Christ, you did have a father. You weren't just kind of drifting out there. You did have someone who was kind of your centrifugal force in your life, in your nature. And the really terrifying thing is it was Satan. You're under his control. He's the one that ran the orphanage that was and is hell on earth. He was the one you looked to before you look to Christ, to provide for you, to protect you, to lead you. And that, that's terrible, but it shows us the third thing we were. We were disobedient. We followed our will over God's will. And that was the same thing that led Satan out of the Father's presence. And it's the same thing that keeps us out of the Father's presence. And this disobedience, like I said, it is not just an action. It is a hardwiring, hardwired for that disobedience, hardwired for that self-centeredness. From here, Paul goes on in verse three. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Okay, so if you're tracking right now, what he's done, he has given us the three enemies, all right? When you become a Christian, you got three enemies. You have the world, he talked about that already. You're following the passions of the world. You're drifting through the world. And the world was led by Satan. So that's second enemy number two. And the third one is your flesh. So the world, Satan, and your flesh, the three enemies that every Christian has. And Paul lays them all out right here so that we can see them. So we once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's this inner craving that our own bodies and minds have. And again, he lays it out there, your body and your mind. These inner cravings that our body and mind naturally had, that God actually created for your body to have before sin. How many of you know that Adam was hungry before Adam and Eve ever ate of the fruit? How many of you know that Adam was also wanting to have sexual intercourse before they ever ate the fruit? He wanted to, he wanted to work, he wanted to eat, he wanted his own body and mind to be satisfied and God created him that way. Sin enters the picture and distorts the cravings so that we get them out of the ways God has said, these are how you get them. And where God was supposed to be the master in the garden and God was supposed to be the master in McDonough and God was supposed to be the master in our life, what now becomes our master is our flesh. So when the body says, take another drink, we say next round on me. When the body says, have sex, we say, let's go. When the mind says, they made you angry, you better get even, we start to devise a plan. And we become a master, or we get mastered by our desires and our emotions. And all you have to do is look around. These are the reasons why in concert 
with these fleshly desires, a world that has set its compass without God in it and Satan who's pulling the strings. These are why we have to make arguments about, well, there are actually way more than two genders. This is why we have to make arguments about, well, we actually shouldn't murder unborn babies. That's why we have to make arguments about what is marriage. The reason we have to make arguments about all these things is because the world, the flesh, and the devil is all working in concert to get us to doubt what God has actually said is true. And that's, that's just the, the painful reality about the world we live in. But it's going exactly according to the enemy's plan. Like that's exactly how he wants it to go. And again, I want you to see how all this works in concert. And this is who we all are without him in our life. And it says from there, we are by nature children of wrath. Before we get to that, I hope, hopefully um, you can see this here that because of our flesh, we were driven by desire. What our flesh wanted us to do is what drove us. We weren't driven by God's desire for us. We were driven by our own internal desire. And here's how it works. So obviously he starts out the beginning of the thing and says, okay, you're dead. You're dead. So if, if death is the worst possible thing that can happen, well, what's behind death? What causes death? The eternal separation from God. Sin does. Sin is what leads to death. It's the reason Adam and Eve died. I think they would have kept on going and going and going and going forever had not sin entered the picture. Well, what's behind sin? The world, the flesh, that's you and Satan. That's what's behind it. And so this is, this is the force that is working us towards death. Now, again, at this point in the ballgame, you're maybe going, man, I knew it was bad, but I think you're, I think you're over preaching it. Like you just told me that I was dead. Yes, for sure, I've made some mistakes, but dead, okay, I can get. But you just said I'm a follower of Satan, that I was one of his sons and daughters, that his spirit is working inside of me, and that before I came to Christ, I was a child of wrath. And you hear that. And, and look, we can hear that for those of us who are saved in the room, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, who are followers of Christ. We can hear that and we go, okay, yeah, thank you, Jesus. But at the same time, we think of family members, coworkers, friends, people in our life that we really love, or even people that we don't necessarily have a deep relationship, but we just know some things about them. You hear a story about a, a soldier in Iraq jumping on a grenade. He's a non-Christian, jumps on a grenade, saves his entire platoon. We hear a story uh, about a Muslim mother who uh, works three jobs to give her kids a chance out of poverty. And we go, well, well God, what's going on there? Like, what is that? Either this is true for everybody or it's just true for no, like help me get my mind around the good that I see in this world and them still being really terrible people. And I, I, let me try to use two illustrations to hopefully help you grasp this. First of all, imagine someone kidnaps your child. Someone kidnaps your child. Some women in the room are already like having a panic attack. Oh no. Um, someone kidnaps your child, okay? They take your child, kidnap them. They take them to their hideout, all right? Now, unbeknownst to the criminals, they don't know that there's the, the police have already set up a, a hidden camera in the place so they can be able to check on the things to make sure the, co the kid is okay before they work out the negotiations. Now, as your kid is there, you, you see them kind of taking a nap, chilling out, and it's around lunchtime. And what you see is as the criminals, the, the kidnappers, they, they're sitting there with your son or daughter over kind of on the other side of the room. It's lunchtime. And one of the criminals, he kind of opens up his thing. He's, oh man, I forgot to pack a lunch. The other criminal goes, oh man, it's okay. And he tears his peanut butter and jelly sandwich in half and he gives it to him. Now, what you're not thinking is, look at the good that he's doing. 
If your, your kid is there, he's kidnapped. He's been taken captive by these people. You're not going, oh man, they're such good hearted folks. They're just, that guy, he's a good guy. No, but we, because of our sin, we had Christ captive. We, we, we took him captive because of our sin. And the only way that God could get him back was if he paid for his son. And his son's blood had to be shed for him to be paid for, for you to be set free, for the kidnapper to actually be the one who gets free, who gets let off. And that's what had to happen. And so because of the context of it being so broken, so wicked, so messed up, you can't even see the good that's being done. God is the very same way. He doesn't look at the, the, the sharing of the peanut butter jelly sandwich, your donations to charity before you became a Christian and go, man, just you're a good person. No, you're still dead. And to put it like this, if I were to punch one of my, one of my buddies, uh, Chuck Rutledge, he, he's one of my neighbors, lives close by. If I, if I punch Chuck Rutledge, like we're just hanging out and I just give him a good punch, like, you know, not nothing crazy hard, but like punch in the arm, like, you know, buddies, you know, kind of frogger or something, you know, I try to frog him right in the bicep and I, and I get him right there. You know, he may, you know, get, try to get me back later when I'm not paying attention, but at the end of the day, not, nothing crazy is going to happen. But somehow if I sneak into the White House and I, I get into Oval Office somehow, I don't know, I have, to, I have to wear a tie and stuff, so that'll be cool. So I get in there and I get into the Oval Office, I start talking to President Biden a little bit. And then while he's not paying attention, I just, ah, I just get him right there in the arm real good. Do you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to see me next Sunday. <laughs> Again, I could, pre I could punch Biden exactly the same hardness as I punched Chuck. The difference is who I committed the punch against. And for us, we've got to understand that whether your sin is one of the big, you know, top 10 lists of the worst ones, or you stole a piece of bubble gum when you were a five-year-old, those sins are against a holy, righteous, perfect God. And that's why all of them are deserving of his wrath. Not because of what they are, but because of who they're against. And so for the person, and again, God lays out his common grace and we see his common grace where even people who have not put their faith in him do a lot of amazing things. And to the Christians in the room, I would say, you know, be careful that, that the world who does not know Christ outpaces the love and generosity and charity that the church should be displaying. And so we can see these things and we go, okay, man, goodness gracious, that's, that's hard to get our mind around. But what I want you to understand is, is this was our truth. This was our reality. This is who we were before we were in Christ. And you can look at this and you can see these variations where we would look at somebody who's really sinful and really messed up and we go, okay, I get that. I get why they would be punt. I, I get why there should be some justice. I get the, the, the person who, the, the school shooter or the, the whatever you, the, the parade shooter. I, I get how there, there should be some justice under the person who molests little kids. I get how that, but like, how could God take the really good sweet old lady who lives across the street from me who doesn't know Jesus and, and, and they, they reach the same end? Here's what I want you to understand. And it's, it's tough. But just because you have not seen the full outworking of depravity in your life or someone else's life does not mean that the seeds of that depravity are all there. To say it a different way, just because you haven't seen yourself at your worst does not mean that your worst is not inside of you. You have no idea given what circumstances you find yourself in, what you may fall to. And God knows this. And we like to pick and judge based off of how far somebody has gone to use the chicken in the refrigerator analogy, how decayed it has gotten. And we think because it's fresh in the fridge that it's not dead. 
is still dead. And the personal illustration for this that, that I had a hard time getting my mind around, it reminded me why, I can't, why, why, why we as Christians just need to stop ju- being so judgmental, is I remember um, when my father was really struggling with addiction, I, I, was, I was senior in high school, enough to kind of figure out what's going on and to know the lies and see the lies. And man, honestly, there's a part of me that I was just like, you're weak. Just stop. You know, like it's a drink, it's a pill, but we are family. Like, and I can maybe understand again, you try to rational all these things out. Like we are family. And like, I looked at my own self in the mirror. And again, this is where pride will take you. I'm a good kid. I make A's and B's. I'm I'm on the baseball. Like I do good things. Uh, It'd be different maybe if we were like, in juvenile detention or something, and maybe you had a reason or you were stressed out, but, but we're pretty good kids. What are you doing? Stop. You're weak. You're soft. But I wasn't there when, as a late elementary age kid, he's riding a Ford pickup truck, and as his granddad, who is his hero, pulls a jug of moonshine out from under the seat of the truck and passes it to him. Have a sip, big man. See, it's, it's really easy to judge where sin has taken people when you don't see where it got them in the beginning. Because in that moment, again, think about your grandpa. Well, think about you as an eight-year-old with your grandpa in the front seat. What do you do? You, you don't think he's offering you poison. You think he's offering you the, the equivalent of a Sprite. Sure. Wow, this makes me feel funny. And you can look at, you can look at the, the, the sexually promiscuous woman and go, man, why? How, how? Goodness gracious. And what you don't know is that that, that woman you see when you go on the side of the road, when you go to downtown Atlanta or, or the person that you see on, on, on a website you hear about or, or whatever, or when you go to New Orleans or Las Vegas, or I don't know why you would go to those places, but when you're at those places and you see these things and you go, how in the world could somebody ever do that with their body? How could somebody ever do that to themselves? She probably has kids at home. Yeah. And if the statistics are true, when she was a kid at home, somebody abused and molested her. See, there are these moments in time where we don't know what caused someone to enter into the depravity that we see them in when we see them. And for a lot of those people, what seems like a really bad choice, keep doing narcotics, keep giving your body away, keep lying to your family, continue to gamble all of your family's money away. We see these really stupid problems and we see all the different ways out. But what we didn't see was when it started and there was no other way out and it was the only option. And this is why we've gotta be very slow to judge because friends, hear me on this. All the seed of all the depravity is in you right now. You could be on the news by this afternoon which is why we have to kind of pause, guys. We have to pause in these moments and realize that what Jesus has done, this is his amazing grace to us, is all the things that he has kept us from. Like, man, I, I, I shudder to think about the husband and father I would be had it not been for the grace of God. 
the adulterous, addictive, all the things that were, that were associated with my last name, that it, had it not been for the grace of God, not my own self-control or obedience or ability to do right or do wrong, but had it not been for the grace of God, the wretched sinner of a self-centered man I would be. Which is why I don't understand how Christians can get older and colder at the same time. The further you get away from your moment of salvation, what you've got to understand, if you, were a, you became a Christian in 1980, what you've got is 40 plus years of Jesus saving you from a crap load of sin that you should rejoice in. Because like, we got to understand that had you been put in many of those situations, there's no telling what you would have said yes to. Like I felt my own weak moments to where if somebody had, had slid a rolled up joint across the table, it would have seemed like a pretty good idea. I felt my weak moments where if somebody would have said, hey, I got a hotel room on the other side of town, it might've seemed like a pretty good idea. But I thank God as you should too for all the times where he held back the onslaught of temptation that you would have fell to because you weren't quite yet grown and transformed into his image and his likeness. And my prayer is that he would grow us, grow us to this place where we have a faith that can withstand whatever temptation comes. And until it does, we pray, we thank him for the amazing grace that he has kept us from it. And we look down the aisle at other people and we refuse to judge them because we know that the seeds of the bad fruit that's being born in their life, those seeds are inside of me too. John Owen, great quote on this. He said, the seed of every sin is inside of every human heart. All of them, list them out. Close your eyes and make the longest list of sin that you possibly can. The seed for every single one of those is inside of your heart right now at this given moment. which leads us to the fifth thing that we were. He says, you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You're just like the rest, children of wrath. I just wanna let that sit there for a second. Let that sink in, that we deserved the wrath of God. I know we don't like to talk about it, I know we don't like to talk about hell, but Jesus talked about it plenty. And Paul, he starts his explanation of the gospel here in chapter two by actually taking people here so that they will actually get to this place where he explains the gospel. Because if you don't actually get it, if you don't understand the gospel, then you're never gonna be able to place value on it in a way to understand what you were saved from. And a lot of times we try to jump. We jump super fast in churches. You know, we don't want to talk about things like this. We want to lean into things like this. We want to jump super fast to how you're more than a conqueror. We want to jump super fast into all the good things that are coming. But listen, every physician knows that if you misdiagnose the disease, then you will misprescribe the cure. And if you don't fully understand the problem, then you're never going to embrace the cure. And Paul knows that. And I hope you come to know it too. See his point to the Ephesians was, you've got to know the problem in order that it can be fixed. And guys, I know this gospel-centered life, like it's going to be inconvenience. 
Like if you, if you center your life on who you are in Christ, if you center your life around the whole of the gospel, it, it will be an inconvenient life. You will have to do things with your time that you don't want to do. You'll have to do things with your sexuality that you don't want to do. You'll have to do things with your finances that you don't want to do, with your words that you don't want to do, with your habits, with your kids, with all of your life that maybe you don't want to do. And it will at times feel inconvenient, but it's kind of like if you were on a flight from Atlanta to LAX, and that's, we're flying you Delta. We're putting you in coach. So you got four inches of leg room. And as the flight takes off, I say, hey, they say, hey, everybody's got to wear a parachute. And at first you're like, man, gosh, I don't want to wear this parachute. I got four inches of leg room. This is so annoying. This is so uncomfortable. These things are huge. They're heavy. I can't even get into the restroom with this thing on. It's impossible. I had to leave the door open. But then halfway through the flight, they say, hey, the reason we gave you parachutes is because we know this flight is going down. That thing that you were complaining about now becomes the best thing you have. It becomes what you reorient your life around. It becomes what you're excited. It becomes when you want to make sure you know how to use this. You want to know, make sure you know the depths of this. You want to know it. And this thing that was cumbersome now becomes the best thing you have. And that's what happens when we understand what our life would have been, how we were on a terminal flight had we not received the gospel. The gospel gives us this parachute for the only hope of life that we can have. It is only found in that. You're not making it out of it by that crazy slide thing that happens on the plane. This plane is going down. Your only hope of survival is the parachute of the gospel of God. God's grace. And that's why he says that to us. That's why he leans into us. And it helps us get to this place where we explain this and where it actually changed our life. Because if you understand the gospel, if you understand what you're saved from, gospel life makes a whole lot more sense. Charles Spurgeon, I came across this quote from him this past week. He said this, he said, those of you who think too lightly of the savior do so because they think too lightly of sin. You show me a man who's felt the noose of God's judgment around his neck and been delivered from it. And that is a man who will weep for joy at the pardon he has received. And then he will hate the evil he has been forgiven of. The truth that he's after here, that Paul's after here, that I'm after here, is it you, my friend, though I love you, I have to tell you, you were dead in your sin. And your problem was not your environment. Your problem was not your parents. Your problem was not your poor self-image. Your problem was not confusion. Your problem was not temptation. You didn't get uh, around just a bad group of friends. You were dead in your sin. You were by nature a child of wrath and you're a son and daughter of disobedience. You were a follower under the influence of Satan. And yes, I know you're not excited about hearing that. And it's not a verdict you're gonna hear on Oprah, Dr. Phil, or from a self-help book at Target. But I need you to understand that what the Bible tells us is true. And guys, I really can't get away Away from that word saved. There's no better way to explain what had to happen than we had to be saved. I didn't need to be improved, edited, updated. I didn't need to be rebooted or enhanced. I didn't need to become the best version of myself. I needed to be forgiven, restored, redeemed. I needed to be saved. So do you. Because the truth about sin is man, sin didn't knock me down to God's JV team. Sin didn't put me on a slower track to my mansion in the sky. Sin didn't um, just mess me up a little bit. It had me dead to rights. It wiped me out. And so I didn't need Jesus to come in and be my homeboy. I didn't need Jesus to come in and give me the best version of myself so that he could be my life coach and help me turn over a new leaf. I needed Jesus to come into my life and resurrect it and give me a new life. That's why I love these next two verses. Biggest conjunction in the entire world, 
but God. And again, Paul, like he goes through all of this and he's building up this tension of like, man, are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to get there? And again, put yourself in the room again, because when they would read the book of Ephesians, it was not really a book at that time. It was a letter to a church and they're sitting in a living room, kind of reading this out to people. And Paul's laying all this out and they're hearing all of what they are. And they're like, oh man. And then they hear about God. And I almost just sense the room just going, yeah, okay. Whoo, whoo, goodness. (laughs) Wow. But God, but God stepped in being rich in mercy. And I, and I think he intentionally said rich in mercy and not grace here. We've talked about this before. Mercy is God withholding the punishment you do deserve. Grace is God giving you the good stuff that you don't deserve. And as he goes and talks through all of the bad things that they were and the wrath that was coming their way, this is why I believe he chooses to say, not you're rich in grace, but God is rich in mercy. He's rich in his ability. There is an unlimited amount of wrath that he can withhold from you because there was an unlimited amount of wrath that he put on his son. That's why he's rich in it. And he says, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's a great place for an amen. And that's the truth. That's the reality we live in. I'd sum up the gospel in these four words. Jesus in my place. I pray those four words reverberate through your heart, mind, and soul this week as you go wherever the Lord takes you, that it was Jesus in my place. As you take communion today, communion will be Jesus in my place. So as you take the cup that represents his poured out blood to make us one and to make you one with him, and as you take this body that signifies his brokenness so you can be made whole and the brokenness that he now heals up in all of us so we can be one, that it doesn't lose his power. And for those of you who are maybe in this room and you hear all the stuff I was talking about today of being dead and drifting and disobedient and driven by the desires of your flesh and destined for wrath and you hear all of that. And if you're not in Christ, I want you to know that's not who you were, that's who you are right now but it's not who you have to be. By the power of Christ, you can be saved. And today you wanna receive that salvation. I ask you to pray with me, a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I need you to save me. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my pride. Raise me from death to life. I don't just need you to be my savior. I need you to be my Lord. Guide me, lead me. God, please father me. Adopt me out of being a child of disobedience and make me a son and daughter, the one true King. I love you and I thank you for this gift. Seal the promise by the power of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, alive in me, in your name, amen.